Welcome to Chromodiversity, a podcast for clinicians, therapists, and families about common genetic diversity in children and adults. I'm Elliot Pollack, founder of the Chromodiversity Foundation, and I'll be your host. Season two is largely focused on the lived experience of growing up with chromodiversity and has featured remarkable stories of people with genetic differences, parents, as well as family associations. Today's guest, Jody Samuels, is an author, speaker, serial entrepreneur, world traveler, disability advocate, supermom and wife living in Jerusalem, and one of her children happens to have three copies of chromosome 21 instead of two, better known as Down syndrome, thought to be present in about one in 800 infants. She challenges mindsets and brings her passion for life to her work as a not-for-profit leader, community activist, disability advocate, and entrepreneur. Her message is simple. Go be unstoppable. Jody's highly regarded memoir is called Chutzpah, Wisdom, and Wine, Journey of an Unstoppable Woman. You can learn more about it on www.jodysvoice.com. Hello, Jody. Thanks a lot for joining me today. It's an honor to have you on the show. Hi, thank you for inviting me. Well, I'd love to hear a little bit before we start about your background. So, Elliot, I was this world traveler and I have an open home and I'm a mega connector and I know thousands of people. And I was also a serial entrepreneur building businesses and exiting them. And then in 2008, when my daughter was born, um, I became a member of a tribe, a tribe I didn't know was going to be part of. I became a member of the certain parents with child with a disability tribe. And one of my big wake-up calls was seeing how hard it was to get my daughter included in society. And it was so incredibly hard. And everybody around me seemed to think, but why is there a problem? The only people who understood how difficult it was to include your child but other parents who were in the same situation. And I was living at the time in Manhattan. I was living in one of the wealthiest of codes in the world. Her, Kayla, my daughter's siblings, were going to a private day school where parents were paying thousands of dollars and she came with a basket of New York City services, unparalleled services. And my daughter was locked out. And I realized there was a need to let our people in. And I started organizing public forums, community forums, bringing speakers, because I realized there was not just a need to change the world for my own child, but I realized that if people don't understand what's going on there, they are not going to be able to be more inclusive. They're not going to be able to address the issues. And so often these issues are just left to not-for-profits and professionals who work in the space except the community at large are like, tick, we're doing such a good job with people with disabilities. And um, so that led me to writing a book about my journey. Um, and the book is called Chutzpah, Wisdom and Wine. And I don't know, for those of you who don't know what chutzpah might mean, but chutzpah is a common word used in um, the Jewish community. It comes from Old Yiddish, but chutzpah means audacious, bold, but really to me, chutzpah means 
the lack of the fear of the word no. And when you become a parent with a child with a disability, you have to be willing to put those boxing gloves on and not be willing to accept no. The other part of chutzpah for me is the fact that it's this place where you go where instead of everybody's like, well, think everybody wants to put our kids in a box. If you're part of like the entrepreneurial creative world, we take our kids out of the box. We want to, I can't, and I'm like, why does there have to be a box in the first place? Chutzpah is about why does there have to be a box? Why do I, any box in society? And the wisdom part is, Wisdom comes for me from my Jewish wisdom. And wine is about having that ability to stop and appreciate. And for all of us who are out there on a journey, parenting or caring for someone who has a challenge, we know that you're always in the role of carer, um, you know, supporter, fighter, advocate, and about taking time out to appreciate our blessings and to party, to enjoy life. So that became my philosophy. And now I speak all over the world talking about radical inclusion, as I'd like to call it, trying to reimagine, like we keep believing the way we deal with disabilities is good, but my question is it good enough. And I want to radically change the way we do inclusion. And I want to make the world better for my own daughter. I am so grateful to all the pioneers who led before me because whatever inroads they made is she's benefiting from. And I hope one day that people like myself and yourself, we will one day change the landscape for the next generation. One question I have for you is just how old your daughter was when you found out she had a genetic difference. How did you find out and how did that make you feel? So my daughter was actually three days old um, when the doctor walked into the hospital room and said he has a suspicion of Down syndrome because she had low muscle tone. I guess I, <laughs> I had had a mother's intuition six weeks before that something was wrong. I'd like, I remember, I get, I get the visceral reaction still now. I remember where I was sitting. I remember thinking something was wrong and coming home and telling my husband, who's a doctor, who's coincidentally trained in obstetrics. He's not an obstetrician, but in South Africa, as part of uh, your training, he, you've done obstetrics. And I, he was like, but all your tests are fine. Everything's fine. I did not do... Um, an amniocentesis, so I did not do definitive prenatal testing, but I had done scans and I had no risk factors. All my, we were like, if there were any indications, we may consider going to the next stage of screening, but we didn't do that because from a religious perspective, we did not believe in abortion. So I did not know my risk factors. I still remember when the doctor walked into the hospital, um, the OBGYN wanted me to have the test and I just did the triple screen and based on the results, she came back and she said, do you have the probabilities of a 21 year old? I'm comfortable if we don't proceed. Six weeks before I had this visceral reaction, something was wrong. And I told my husband and, you know, he's a doctor, so there was no evidence and it wasn't published in a journal. And as far as he was concerned, you know, there was no reason. 
And I went, I even remember taking him to the OBGYN. I insisted he come and she, I was crying. And he was like, she was like, what's wrong? You're usually so stoic. And I said, something's wrong. And they were, everything's fine. And I was like, but you don't know that. Your child, you know, child born with autism or many, you know, syndromes and that are only detected sometimes at age two, never mind at birth. So when I was getting prepared for my cesarean, I was praying. I didn't pray, please, God give me a healthy child. I remember saying, please God, give me the strength to deal with what comes my way. But then my daughter was born and she scored like nine on the APCA scale. She was great. I had this huge database and this big community. We sent out an email to like 8,000 people saying, mom and baby are doing well. And then day three, when the doctor um, suggested that he said we have to go for more testing and I just knew I had that mother's intuition came to me then I knew this were the two I knew what the genetic testing would would conclude and yep <laughs> that's how we found out how did it make you feel so I actually had absolute terror and fear you know, when you think, oh, something might be wrong, you don't put a name to it. Like, you know, you don't imagine Down syndrome per se. You just have the sense something's wrong. I have a first cousin who was born in 1970. And she, in those days in South Africa, you know, they basically took the baby, counseled my aunt to put her in an institution. And my family saw her a few times a year. And I grew up very close to my cousins who had a lot of trauma around having a child with a disability, I knew what Down syndrome was, as opposed to sometimes people have to like look it up, be educated, counseled. And of course, my husband was a doctor, so he also knew what it was. I remember like in that moment, it flashed to me when I used to go to the synagogue in South Africa. It was right near where the Jewish home for the disabled were. And they used to bring people with all disabilities, but a lot of them had Down syndrome. And I remember I couldn't even look at those people. I it was one of those people, like it was uncomfortable for me to look at them. And I had all this trauma. And here before my eyes flashes my aunt's life. And at this point in my life, I am hostess extraordinaire. I'm an entrepreneur. I haven't yet made it to the front page of Fortune and Forbes and all my plans. And I had been to 40 countries and I planned to travel the world still. And suddenly all this flashes and I'm like, what is this going to mean for my marriage? What is this going to mean for Kayla's siblings? And I had absolute terror. I remember there was like a, a good 30 minutes of absolute fear. But then I went into the restroom and I looked in the mirror and it was the only place I could be alone with me. <laughs> and I looked in the mirror and I just thought, I had two things that helped me. One was I had had two miscarriages between Kayla and my middle daughter, and I felt for whatever reason God wanted me to have this child. And as I mentioned, I run this not-for-profit, and I have a really open home, like an open home that we have hundreds of people come in and out all the time, um, just anecdotally, because it explains what kind of an open home we have in New York, all the buildings have doormen. And after about four years, I guess, of the doorman seeing people walk in and out of the apartment and deliveries coming in and out. He said to me, I know what you do. 
you run a soup kitchen for Jewish people. And, you know, when like, we really had an open home. And I was like, if this is my life and I shut the door to my own child, then my life's a lie. So I had those perspectives. And I just, you know, in that moment, I realized I had an honest conversation with me. What kind of parent do I want to be? What kind of um, wife? What kind of legacy do I want to leave in this world? And I walked out of there and I was like, we are going to not be the victims. We're going to be the victors in this situation. A rabbi that's very much that I respect says, we achieve greatness in life when we pass our values on to the next generation. And I walked out there and I said that to my husband. I said, like, I know what kind of parents we want to be. And not only that, I know what kind of parents we want to be, not just to Kayla, but to our other siblings. What message we want, uh, sorry, Kayla's other siblings, our other children, what message we want them to get in life. It gave me a perspective, but yes, there was lots of anger. There was still, even though I had this brave front and I was like, yes, and walk out of there and go like, thank you, God. You gave me a child with a disability. I'm good with it. I, there was a lot of why me, why us, you know, our family, we do so much. We could change the world. Why we given these challenges? I certainly don't have anger now. I have worry. <laughs> I stress about lots of things. I'm always concerned about my daughter's future. I'm concerned about many more things than maybe I was about her siblings. But I'm certainly not angry and I'm certainly grateful she's in my life. And I certainly, and I'm certainly not fearful of people with Down syndrome. I certainly have overcome that challenge. That took me, that had to take, you know, I had to like re shift, shift my entire perspective. She's now 14 and she has her older sister's 18 and her brother is 20. Definitely you have the values, the purpose, family, all that sets sort of a framework. That gives you a sort of say, it's like the canvas. It gives you the lines, but inside there you still um, got to struggle. To go back to day three, what were you told? We were told initially that they would have to do testing to confirm it. I just remember we had this really bizarre conversation. So the pediatrician was a visiting pediatrician because our pediatrician was not able to come in that day. So we didn't really have a relationship with him. So it was a very cold, just, you know, delivered message. Two minutes later, the OBGYN, who had delivered all three of my children, and she was also the same person who had said, based on those probabilities, I'm comfortable. She walks in and she goes, I just spoke to the doctor and he told me he's suspicions of Down syndrome. She goes, but what's the probability you the one in 25,000? And my husband said, just that, exactly that, the one. So it was like a bizarre conversation because she was sort of in disbelief. And I think her biggest fear of being an American doctor was like, so now we're going to sue her because she didn't force us to do the amniocentesis. It was just a bizarre conversation. They then did send in the genetic counsellors who very dryly gave us our options, you know, from, you know, possibly giving up your child to keeping your child to... I was like, I couldn't actually believe that in New York City in 2008, like, I understand why giving up your child is an option and should be there if that's a question a parent's searching for. I just felt that it was so, like, 
is option A, option B, option C. It was delivered without emotion. And there was certainly, certainly no deep explanation of Down syndrome about children with Down syndrome can live long lives, meaningful lives, can be healthy, can get intervention, can be part of society, differ greatly in terms of how their um, phenotypes express themselves. There's no guarantee. Like, no discussion about that. It was more like about your options. You know, we can help you get early intervention services. We can bring in social work services. Some parents want respite and want to keep their children away from them for a few weeks to consider their options. I mean, I just felt like it was very clinical, very dry, no emotion and no meaningful content that really helped a parent to understand what Down syndrome was. It seems in the past decades, things have changed quite a bit with regards to Down syndrome in that it's known that people can have long, happy lives and fulfilling lives and that there's high variability. How did you start to learn about the positive perceptions? So Elliot, the, the, the only thing more, more, I think, scary than the genetic counselor was when the social worker came in the hospital. And she gave us the book called What to Expect When You're Having a Child with Down Syndrome. So there's a series, What to Expect When You're Expecting, What to Expect in the First Year of Your Child's Life. They, they, uh, at least in those days, they were a popular book series. I remember feeling like, okay, well, now I have my encyclopedia of how I'm going to learn everything about my child's condition. And when I remember coming home and reading this book. and I looked at my husband and I said, I think we've actually given birth to a monster. I mean, I'm overwhelmed. I'm postpartum. I've just found out my child has Down syndrome. I'm exhausted. And I'm reading a book that only lists all the potential issues your child could have. Mm. And the list was long. It was a thick book. And I was, like, terrified. And I like literally cracked. I was like, I couldn't believe it. I mean, you just this book, like she'll have rotten teeth, thin hair, flat feet, gastric issues, yeah, cognitive, emotional. I mean, the list just went on and on. And that was by chapter three. I hadn't even got to about chapter 23. And I was beyond overwhelmed. And someone sent us a video. And to say, I was like a little clip about Down syndrome on the internet. It was on the internet, I can't remember, and we watched it. And it said the most important thing is that you have to remember your child is your child first. Just like you don't, when a child's got cancer, call your child a cancerous child. You know, your child is not the Down syndrome. The child is just like a, can a child with cancer isn't the cancer. She's a child going. And it was such an amazing message because in that moment when I was absolutely freaked out, it gave me that perspective that she's my baby first. And we then started searching on the internet, but I think the most powerful way for me to learn truly was other parents, other, I call, I call them the other mama grizzlies, other mama warriors and out there who became my resources and meeting families who are children and seeing families, how they interacted, seeing how the children were so different. There was no one 
version of Down syndrome. Like people love all special needs, just to put them in a box. Special needs are like bees, you know. So if you have Down syndrome, you're all the same. But no, you're not the same. And it gave me a lot of um, understanding combined with what I was reading, combined with my husband's knowledge, um, to be able to really understand what Down syndrome meant, you know, there was maybe the the list of medical um, concerns and issues and things that you have to check up. And we went to 400 medical appointments in the beginning. So you also learn from those, but there was nothing more powerful than other families and other parents. When did you start feeling and seeing the positive aspects? You know, I have three things that I remember in that like early months journey. I remember there was one just feeling like I had this weight on my shoulders. I felt like I was carrying, you know, two 50-ton piles of bricks on each shoulder. And I was I was wondering when I'd ever feel happy ever again. And I just remember my husband and I were in the car and something happened. And like, I don't know, he cried. my husband makes these funny jokes and he said something. And I just remember we both cracked up laughing. And I like just like one of those gut-wrenching laughs, you know, when you're like, and I was like, wow, I, I actually feel happy. I, I can laugh. And it was she maybe my daughter was maybe like six weeks or two months on. And I like that was like the first thing I was like, I realized that actually I can still be happy. And then I think the second thing was I was sitting with her one day and I just looked at her little feet. And she was like a baby lying on the bed. And I remember just thinking, oh my gosh, this baby's so delicious. Like I so adore her. And I didn't see her, I didn't see her Down syndrome, I didn't see her challenges, I didn't see the therapist schedule or to-do list next to my bed that was waiting for me to conquer for the day. I just saw those little feet. And I remember having, and it was like the same emotion I had had with my other kids, of just like, oh my gosh, she's so delicious. So I went from like, God wasn't part of the equation, then I was angry at God, and then I was going to Israel. And she was going to be about six months old. And I had planned, I don't know why I couldn't have this conversation to God, but Jewish people believe our holiest of holy place is in the Western Wall in Jerusalem. And I was going to go there and I was going to have it with God there. I don't know why I couldn't have the conversation before with God. I had to go to Jerusalem. And I remember having almost like this speech in my head prepared, how I was going to like, and I just remember by the time I got to Jerusalem and she was six months old, I didn't need to have that conversation with God. Somewhere along the line, I'd evolved from being angry to this is my daughter and, you know, she's beautiful and we're grateful for her in our lives. And I'm not sure exactly how and when the click changed over, but I think it was more sort of evolutionary, you know, day by day. What are the greatest strengths that you see in her? So Kayla is very social. She loves people, but she has a great EQ. And even when she was like, you know, she'd be a little kid and she would see, she'd see like one of my friends and she would use like her learned prompted language, but she's in my friend and she'd say like, so how was your summer? And like, this is an adult. Most kids hardly even look an adult in the eye. Here she is looking at, and my friend would say, well, it was a little bit boring. My husband was working all the time. And then she'd be like, how do you feel? When your husband comes home late, are you lonely? And she would have like, she's always just had this incredible empathy for people. She has empathy. She understands people. She sees situations. She can cut through 
Like my husband and I will have a squabble about something. She'll be like, Ima, Abba, Mom, Dad, you're just arguing because Abba is tired and hungry. You love him anyway. <laughs> you know, just, just ignore him. But she'll be like from a young age. You can just see through situations. She's got incredible empathy. That's like, and her second thing is unbelievable perseverance. Like in order to achieve everything she has to achieve in life, you know, another kid gets up and tries to crawl, they get up and eventually they just, you know, get on their knees and they crawl. She would fall down flat on her face. And it was the same with walking or hopping or running or math. Oh, and she doesn't give up. She's just very, very tenacious and perseverant. Do you think that your daughter feels or sees a significant difference and if so what's your sense on how she interprets that or how she deals with that she absolutely absolutely sees her difference so we had the philosophy right up front of talking about it freely in front of our other kids in front of her we never hit it you know some parents sort of don't give it a name and don't talk about in front of their kids so we always spoke about it and we always had the philosophy both with our other kids and her we'll answer the questions at the level your kids ask the questions is the level they are they understand and we always spoke about we spoke about it freely there was never secrets and from like a young age i remember her one day coming to me and going she saw she was watching tv look look he also has down syndrome so she was you know able to identify someone and she definitely had an awareness of people who were different and would not want to engage in them. Or if we went to groups where there were kids who had Down syndrome, and because she's pretty high functioning, so to her, she was higher functioning than some of the other kids, then she wanted to mommy them. She always had this like awareness of where she was in a hierarchy, I guess, that she created in her mind. We've spent a lot of time and effort trying to put her in environments where she's both included and she's with kids with disabilities. In spite of that, she was 10 years old and she was going to a youth group and she was going for, to a special needs group in the youth group. And there were like five kids, five counsellors. You know, she got a lot of attention. She was the queen. And she comes to me one day and she goes, Mommy, I want to switch groups. So I said, why? She said, I want to go to a group with the real people. I was like, oh, what are the real people? And she said, well, I don't want to be. And she listed like, this kid's in a wheelchair. This kid doesn't speak. This kid is wild. This kid is older than me. And, you know, so she immediately showed at age 10, she understood in her world that one was like a much more aspirational group to be in. But I also understood from her point of view, it was probably no more inclusion. And that just putting someone with abilities who aren't matched, aren't necessarily more able to be your social peers, you know, just because they have a disability. But as she said, one's in a wheelchair, one doesn't talk, one, one is older than me and one is very wild. What would you say is perhaps the thing that she struggles with the most? I think her number one primary need in her life as a teenage girl is wanting the social and yet not being able to successfully make it happen. And 
no matter how hard the other parties try, she doesn't necessarily engage with it. And I think it comes from her not being comfortable with who she is. She lives between two worlds. And no matter how much from guidance counseling to art therapy to integration, we've, we've done all version of activities from with just kids with Down syndrome to mixed kids with a bit different disabilities and, you know, neurotypical kids all in the same environment. And she goes to school in a regular ed environment. So she really struggles with that. I had an interesting conversation with her. I said, what's um, hard about having Down syndrome? So she said, and she said it was a very interesting answer. She said, I always have to think quickly. And I was like, wow, well, that's a quick answer for someone who has to think quickly. But I think for her, <laughs> um, she, I think for her, she feels like she's always like playing catch up, you know, whether it's academically, socially, she's always, it was like, she said, I have to think quickly. And then I said to her, so what's good about having Down syndrome? And she said, nothing. And, you know, one of my friends said to me, Jody, I don't think many 14-year-old girls can look at an imperfection in their life and see it as good. And you're asking her something that, to her, much magnified imperfection relevant relative to the other girls. You're asking her a tough ask. <laughs> What's good? I'll share with you one little scenario because I think sometimes it also, like, describes the other side. She had finally learned to ride a scooter. And I cannot tell you how many hours we spent trying to get to that. And all the kids ride around in scooters. So I said to her, wow, this is so amazing. You're going to be going out with all the girls now. And she looked at me and she said, I just want to be a real teenager. So I said, um, and like my heart dropped because I was like, oh, here comes this conversation. What am I going to say? I just want to be like other girls. I just want to be a real teenager. So I'm like preparing myself. I said, so what does a real teenager mean to you? She's like, I just want to have an Instagram account. Okay. So sometimes, you know, that's also, you know, she's like very aware what being a real teenager is. Right. Now, isn't there also, though, an external aspect that if somebody is lacking some self-confidence because they're feeling it a little bit difficult to fit in, the issue is not necessarily them. Anyone can end up with certain differences that might make them feel excluded. So isn't the onus on the outside world? Ah, so now you hit my hot button on this issue. But yeah, like one of the things I say when I give my talks is I say I hate kindness. I, I don't hate kindness for what is meant to be. I hate the fact that we've become a society that's become about ticks. We think like, well, if we donated to an organization that deals with disabilities, tick. Oh, we invited someone over for a meal, tick. Oh, sixth grade children have these like projects where they have to go out and, you know, their kindness projects and go work in the community oh, we go visit an old person for an hour. Oh, we go help a kid with a disability for an hour. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of values and benefits that come out of it, but we've created a society where we give checks for doing those things, for writing checks. For, but what we haven't done is we haven't created a society that where people truly open their 
homes, their hearts, their schools, their religious institutions, their sports centers. What we've done is we've created very, very good not-for-profits that serve lots of needs on the outskirts of society. But are we truly celebrating people with disabilities? Are we celebrating diversity? Are we really including them? Are we building a society where they really can be included? Thank you for listening to this first of two episodes with Jody Samuels, a global author, speaker, entrepreneur, and disability advocate. As you heard, although by principle Jody believes in the worthiness of every life, she's brutally honest about the personal challenges she faced coming to terms with her daughter's diagnosis of Down syndrome, the shock provoked by a seemingly endless stream of negative information, and a corresponding fear due to the lack of positive information of the many life options people with genetic differences can benefit from today. You also heard about how Jody came to see the wonder and qualities of her daughter and how she's come to believe that what matters above all is to look at your child as a person first, not a medical condition. Perhaps the biggest single takeaway is how frustrating it can be for a child growing up with chromodiversity to be treated with apparent kindness, yet, in fact, still remain socially excluded. Tune in next week for the second part of my conversation with Jody, where she vigorously questions our current approach to disability, calls for a different, more radical kind of inclusion, and shares a sneak peek into her upcoming book focused on practical guidance for parents. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please show your support by donating today. With your help, we'll ensure an easy listening experience so you can access engaging and authoritative information on common genetic diversity in children and adults notified to you weekly in your inbox. Thanks again for listening and have a wonderful day.